Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. We need to come to the Lord daily. It isn't just about physical food, though for many in the world today, they could be praying this and, and, uh, and really mean it. Lord, just feed me today. Give me food for my family today. But for us, on a practical level, we gotta, we got to take this in a, beyond the physical and, and at least apply it in the spiritual. Why? Jesus always used physical pictures to teach spiritual lessons. Today, Pastor Sam completes his message, The Lord's Prayer. In this study of Matthew 6, verses 9 through 15, we have been looking at what Jesus said and what his example was when he was teaching his disciples on how to pray. The application for us today is huge, as you will see as we listen in. Names in Scripture speak of nature and character. So when we say, hallowed be your name, we're acknowledging that God's character is holy and that he is a righteous God, and that everything he does is right. And only God's like that. You know, the Jewish scribes had such respect for the name of God that when they were translating the Old Testament and they came across the name of God, they would just write the consonants they wouldn't write in the vowels. And that caused some problems when we got around to translating the Bible. Why? Because you couldn't really be sure in many cases exactly which vowels fit. Now, there were some grammatical rules that made it po more possible to know than not to know in many cases. But, but because of that, people have come up with the idea that, well, God's name in the Old Testament, think it must be Jehovah. You've got to know it wasn't. Here's why. There was no J in their alphabet. They didn't have the J sound. No, they had a Yah sound. They, they had Yah. And so, highly likely, someone just said it, Yahweh. Very probable. Instead of Joshua, they would have said Yahshua or Jehovah. They would have said Yehovah or Yahweh. And so, but, but my point is this, they so revered the name of God, they wouldn't write it out even. They wouldn't pronounce it out loud. Only the high priest on the Day of Atonement, there in the Holy of Holies, would pronounce the name of God. So high was the respect and reverence for his name. Now, there are a couple other things as related to his name. Some of you are aware of this, of course. God does have a first name. His name is Jesus. We sing it. His name is Jesus. Jesus. Why? There's something about that name. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's his name. Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is the name of the Son of God. But in the Old Testament, God reveals his, his last name. It's there because he says, this is my name, and this is my name forever. It's the name I am. And so if you put it all together, being a child of God, what that does is it, it makes you like Bob I am, and, and you know, Pat I am, and, and Karen I am, and you know what it makes me, of course, Sam I am, that's right. <laughs> and, and, and even that becomes useful. Because I meet little kids and they're like, what's your name? And I'm like, Sam. And they're like, whoa, great eggs and ham. And I'm like, right on, Sam I am. And, and then I begin to explain to them what that actually means. It means something. My father says, my name is, I am, forever. And so we have become the family of I ams. We are his children, born again of his spirit, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. When I pray, when you pray, your kingdom come, there really, there are three things that should be in our heart and mind. First of all, we are praying for more of him, more of his rule and reign in and over our lives personally. And listen, 
I don't know what it was like for you. I'm, I am absolutely being honest. When I ruled and reigned over my own life, I just trashed it and I messed up the lives of those around me. And even after I became a Christian and even after I became a pastor, from time to time, I kind of try to take the reins back and do my own thing. But we sang today, Lord, reign in me. And it's hypocritical to sing it or pray it and not mean it. And so when we're praying, your kingdom come, we're saying, Lord, really do reign over me. Really establish your lordship in my life over every area of my life. And if we do, the Lord's going to say, well, then that has to go. All right, Lord, it's yours. Well, then that, that can't stay. Okay, it's gone. Well, then this needs to happen. Whatever you say, Lord, because if he's Lord and we're his servants, well, then the only thing we can say to anything he has to say is, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. So there's a personal application. There's also a universal application. We're praying for him to expand and extend his kingdom in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our community, as we reach out to the world around us. We're saying, Lord, let your kingdom come. Expand your rule and reign, not just in our lives and homes, but in all lives and homes. It's an intercessory prayer at that point. We're no longer just praying for God's glory and, and for his kingdom. We're praying for people. Why? A king needs, and, and a kingdom needs those who will be subject to. And then finally, we are praying for him to return. The ultimate answer to this prayer, your kingdom come, happens when Jesus returns to this earth and establishes his kingdom as he promised he would. We looked this last Wednesday night at Revelation 22 and, and the whole thing concludes with them saying, hey, I'm coming quickly. And what's the response? Yes, Lord. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That's what we're praying when we say your kingdom come. So, Lord, your name exalted, honored, magnified, your kingdom in my life, in our lives, in our community, and, and ultimately when you return, established. And then your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, there's a, a promise in the Old Testament that the days are coming when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. When no one will say, know the Lord, for all will know the Lord. That's the time when this prayer will fully and finally be answered. But again, your will be done. When I'm saying, Lord, what's your will? I want it to be done. There's places where he says, pray the Lord of the harvest, that, that he would send out workers into his harvest. Why? The, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And he tells his disciples, I want you to pray. You know what he does next? He sends them out two by two in answer to their prayer. And I think he says the same thing to us. Pray the Lord of the harvest. It isn't just pray for evangelists. Is pray for workers in the harvest. I know Danny's going to share on that, so I don't want to take anything from it, but that, that'll be his message next Sunday morning as he shares with us. Workers for the harvest. Why? The harvest is plentiful. People need Jesus. But anyway, your name, your kingdom, your will, all three of these errorist imperatives in the Greek, what does that mean to us? It means that we're to be praying these things with a sense of urgency and an awareness of their necessity. That's got to happen. The world we live in, and you're aware, it's a mess, and it isn't getting any better. Oh, we have short seasons where it seems like we're making progress, where, where we're, we're, getting some, some, we're getting somewhere. But, but by and large, he says, no, 
It's just a, a facade. If you ever been to Woodleaf, the, the front of all the buildings, they, they look like an old western town and they're painted real cool and all that stuff, but when you get behind them, they're just regular old buildings like anything else, you know? And there's nothing wrong with a facade on Woodleaf. It just dresses it up, makes it look like what they wanted it to look like. But that's kind of how the world is. There's just a, a, a big facade saying, well, it's not so bad or it's, it's getting better or, hey, you know, things aren't as bad as, no, it's bad. And, and it's worse than we really want to think about or consider or deal with. So he says, pray these things. Holy be your name or hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Pray it with urgency and pray it as a necessity. And, and then he goes from, okay, this is how we should be praying. So I'm not going to embarrass you by saying, how many of you start your prayers that way? I'm not saying these words exactly, but come in, you recognize who you're talking to, where he is, how powerful he is, his willingness to meet your needs, his desire to do so. His eyes, we're told, go to and fro upon the earth, looking for someone on whose behalf he can show himself strong. What a wonderful picture of our Lord. Just looking, watching. Where's the need? Oh, there, I can help. I'll, I'll Man, I just, I, I want to do that. And, and all he's saying is, bring it, bring it. Now he moves to a very basic, fundamental daily need. And I think he puts this first for a very important reason. He wants us to know that even those things that seem small and insignificant compared to other people's needs or problems, he cares about it. He cares. He wants us to bring those prayers. He, he's, he's not like, well, can't believe you're bugging me with that again. You're hungry. There's hungry people everywhere. God's not like that, right? So he says, the next thing we do is we pray for our provision. Give us this day our daily bread. It is an acknowledgement of our humility before him, of our absolute need of him, that, that he makes it possible for us to feed ourselves. Now, in these days of refrigeration and pantries and, you know, super stores and supermarkets, it's hard for us to get in the shoes of somebody who could honestly pray every day, give us this day our daily bread. But, but there's a picture of this in the Old Testament where the children of Israel for 40 years wandered in the wilderness. And every day, the manna was provided miraculously. It was perfect nourishment. It was perfect food. And, and, and the deal was you had to just get up and gather it and bring it in. But if you were lazy and you said, well, I'm just going to sleep in, I'll get it late, well, it would have melted away by the time the sun rose in the sky. If you said, well, I'll just get more today so I can sleep in tomorrow, well, that wouldn't work either. And there's a spiritual picture built in for us there. We need to come to the Lord daily. It isn't just about physical food, though for many in the world today, they could be praying this and, and, uh, and really mean it. Lord, just feed me today. Give me food for my family today. There are millions of people in that position as we meet here today. But, but for us, on a practical level, we gotta, we got to take this in a, beyond the physical and, and at least apply it in the spiritual. Why? Jesus always used physical pictures to teach spiritual lessons. He's not saying we shouldn't pray and acknowledge that he is the source of our food even if we have a full pantry. He gave us the ability to work. He gave us the opportunity to live somewhere where we could have all that. But... Jesus in John 6 says, I am the bread of life. And unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life in you. Now, by the time you get to the end of that chapter, a lot of people who were following Jesus decide, that's it, we're leaving. John 6, 6, 6 says, many of them turned away and followed him no more. Easy to remember that, yeah? John 6, 6, 6. 
But right before that, he says, hey, listen, the words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. He was speaking spiritually. He, he wasn't saying you got to eat my flesh physically and drink my blood physically. No, he's saying you need to make me a real part of you. I need to be in you in reality. And when we pray, Jesus, come into my life, be my Lord and Savior, that's what happens. He comes into our lives. He takes control. He becomes Lord, though he already is Lord. He, we acknowledge him and begin to live as if that were true. There's yet one more way this works for us and happens for us. As surely as they needed the manna daily and morning worked best, we need to be in the word of God daily. And here's why. He likens it to food throughout the scripture. The newborn babe desires the pure milk of the word that he or she could grow thereby. But as you grow, man, you need the, the, the bread of the word and the meat of the word. Why? Because you can't live on last week's nourishment. You can't live on yesterday's nourishment. And, and I know even those of you who have a real devotional life, you get up every day and you read the Bible. Sometimes you get up, you're running late, things aren't going good, things don't pan out, and you're like, well, I'll make sure I do it at the end of the day. But then things don't work out there either. And then the next day it's even easier to miss. And then you're like, well, I'll at least get it from Pastor Sam on Wednesday night. But then something goes wrong and you don't make that. And all of a sudden, three, four, five days go by and, and you're in the midst of a trial and you, you're like, man, I remember I used to feel so strong. And I used to feel so, and, and what happened? You got to be nourished daily if you're going to stand the test that we have to go through weekly. The bottom line is you need spiritual nourishment. I need spiritual nourishment and we need it daily. And he says, pray, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As surely as we need food daily, we are going to find a need to ask forgiveness daily. Now, I've learned some things about forgiveness. I've found it's best to ask quickly because here's what happens. Sin separates. It puts a wedge. Sin separates us from fellowship with God. If you're a child of God, you don't stop being a child of God because you sin, but you do experience a separation, a distance. And the longer you wait to get it right, the greater that distance seems. Now, I'm not saying God moves further away, but the wedge between you, that... That problem, that sin, that unwillingness to confess, to make it right, it just gets worse and worse. And this happens in our interpersonal relationships with one another. If I sin against Pam, though, that's rare, if ever, an occurrence. But just say it happened. And, and, and instead of saying, Pam, I'm so sorry, I never should have spoken that way, forgive me. If I do it right away, I found she does forgive me. And, and, and then we kind of just get past it. But if if I kind of hang on and, and I'm like, well, I'm not sure it was all my fault. And the more I try to blame shift or rationalize or justify or figure out, was that a 50-50 or a 60-40? I find that a wedge gets bigger. And by the time I ask for forgiveness, she's like, I don't know. And, and I'm like, you got to forgive me. And then we start playing scripture wars. You've played those. And you got to forgive me. It says right here, you're supposed to forgive me. And he, she's like, yeah, you're also supposed to love me as Christ loved the church. And, and that goes nowhere. You know that. And, and so my point is just this. It's like when I sin, I need to ask forgiveness. And when you sin, you need to ask forgiveness. But you know that it's not enough to ask the person you sinned against. You need to ask God for forgiveness. 
We see this so beautifully illustrated in, in David's life when he sinned against Bathsheba by, by bringing her to his palace and, and having a, committing adultery with her. And then he sinned against her husband Uriah by trying to set him up so he would think the child was his. And then when that didn't work, he sins against Joab by saying, send him out to the front of the battlefield and, and have the men withdraw and he'll be killed. And, and so David goes from adultery to murder and actually pulling someone else into that whole thing. And when he finally repents, he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, I read that and I think, what? He certainly sinned against Bathsheba and, hey, murderer, you sinned against Uriah. But what, what is he saying? He's not saying he didn't sin against them. He's just saying, I recognize that all sin ultimately is against you. When I sin against a person, I'm sinning against God. Why? They were made by God and for God and, and they're loved by God, even the unbeliever. And certainly the child of God, well, that's his children. You want to get along with me? Don't abuse my children. And certainly, if you want to get along with God, don't abuse his children. And so he says, listen, pray for provision. Pray for forgiveness. Why? We're going to need it. We are going to sin. We do sin. And he says, forgive us as we forgive others. Now, now look there in verse 14, because this ties in and I want to conclude with, you know, what follows. But, but, but it says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, verse 14, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. What you need to know is he's talking to people that understand that their forgiveness is God's grace. It's his gift. They don't earn it. They don't deserve it. And, and he's not saying that as a prerequisite to experiencing his forgiveness, we got to go out and forgive everybody. That's not what it's saying. But it is saying as a child of God, one who is receiving his forgiveness and has received it, one who can pray our Father and have that mean something. Well, I can't pray mercy for me and judgment for him. Lord, be gracious to me and give him what he deserves, you see. If I am going to be continually receiving God's forgiveness, I need to see myself as a distributor of forgiveness. And when I say it all stops here, God says, no, it stops right short of you. You see, that's sort of how it works. I can't receive and not give. Or God will say, that's it. I'm not, you can't be forgiven if you're unwilling to be forgiving. Now, it all started with him, though. Remember that. It's not like forgive, 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 and I'll forgive you. No, you've been forgiven. How much? Every sin you've ever committed. When Jesus was nailed to that cross and shed his blood and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That means when you said, Father, forgive me, he did that. And now as we come and say, oh, Lord, that thought, those words, that attitude, forgive me. He does that, but it's all based on the sacrifice already made. There's no new sacrifice. And so in the midst of it, having been forgiven all, and he'll give us this in parabolic form later. He'll give us some great teaching on it later in, in Matthew. But, but having been forgiven all, I need to be someone who doesn't stop the flow of forgiveness. It flows to me and it must flow through me. And if I'm not willing to let it flow through me, he's not willing to let it flow to me. Well, what happens then? Am I no longer a child? No, I'm still, I'm still his child, but now I'm a rebellious child, a disobedient child. Now there's distance between me and him. Now there's distance over here and everywhere I turn. Well, I'm just making things worse for me and for others. Well, 
Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive our debts. We are forgiving others. We will forgive others. We will keep that channel of grace and mercy and forgiveness open. And then he says, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. James tells us, by the way, that God never tempts us to sin. And so really he's saying, keep us from temptation. Keep us, don't let me go down that road. It's so easy for me to, and so easy for you to move away from that straight and narrow path he'd have us walk. And and we need to be wise. We need to know where we're weak. We need to know where we're vulnerable. We need to look back at where we've fallen. And we need to say, Father, keep me from going that way. Don't let me go my own way. Rule over me. Be my Lord. Direct me. Protect me. Lead us not into temptation. God never tempts us to sin, but he will test and try us. The the purpose of those two, though, well, they're, they're at opposites. Why? Satan tempts, and his goal is to defile and disqualify us. That's what he's all about. He knows he can never have us. You may be unsure of your security in Christ, but Satan knows if you're in Christ Jesus, and he knows you have security, whether you realize it or not. He may lie to you and say, you're not secure, you're not safe, you're not saved. Satan's a liar, and he knows, he recognizes, but the deal is is that, that Satan comes and, and he tempts because he wants to defile you, to render you unfit for worship, for service, for, for reproduction spiritually. But God, when he tests, it's never to see us fall, but to prove us, to show us, hey, you can stand. Look how far you've come. Look how much you've grown. Look at, look at how, how this is working. I'm here holding you up. And so he says, pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I've talked about this in the past, but deliverance from the evil one. How does that happen? As I know the truth of the word of God, as the enemy comes to tempt, to lie, to distort, to twist the word, all I got to know is what the word says. And, and, and as Jesus did say, no, 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 no. You see, when, when God told Eve and, and Adam that the day they ate of that forbidden fruit, they would die. God told him the truth. But Satan comes and says, you're not going to die. Somebody was lying. Guess who? It was Satan, and it's always him. God tells the truth, so we know the truth. You continue in my word, you'll be my disciples. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The enemy can come, he can lie. The enemy can come and he can tempt, but you're going to say, nah, the word says, no, the Bible says, no, the Lord says, and you're going to be fine. So lead us not into temptation. Keep us from that, Lord, and, and deliver us from the evil one. Just, just keep us close to you. You know, when you became a Christian, another wonderful picture, I, I don't know how, how long ago I heard it, I loved it though, is that it's sort of like, you know, your, your body is, is a house. You live in it. You know, when you die, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So you're going to leave this shell behind. But if you see it as a house, you got to know that when, when you were in the world, before you came to the Lord, it, it's like, well, you kind of, many of you thought you were a free agent, but, but really, you were serving the powers of darkness. You were led astray and you were leading others astray. And, and it's sort of like when you become a Christian, you get a new landlord. God takes over the whole thing. And when the enemy comes and he comes knocking, he comes tempting and he comes intimidating, I'm like, nah, why don't you just talk to the new landlord, you know? I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with him. Why? I don't have to. It's resist the devil and he'll flee from you. 
Put on the full armor of God. Stand your ground. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Not all of your Bibles have that last phrase. If you have New American Standard or the nearly inspired version, NIV. No, I'm, I'm joking. It's nearly indispensable. But, but you probably noticed, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's not there. Why? Well, it wasn't in all of the ancient manuscripts, but is this a scriptural conclusion to this prayer? I believe absolutely. And for if this were the only reason that I had New King James or used King James, I'd stick with it because I don't know if you ever try to sing the Lord's Prayer and you get right to that climax and you just stop. No, you've got to be able to sing for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. No, these words belong they're absolutely true. They, they frame this perfectly. Why? It, we began talking about his glory and praying for it. And now he's, he's saying, remember, acknowledge, conclude the prayer. Yours is the kingdom. Your kingdom come. The power and the glory forever. Amen. If it is your desire to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, if you desire to have your life used by the Lord, if you desire to understand his will for you, and if you desire to be changed in order to be more like Him, you must recognize how important prayer is for us all. Join us next time as we continue on in the Gospel of Matthew. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.